Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, Em. Hey, Barry. Em, I've got this little Shakespeare guessing game. Want to play? Oh, yeah. Let's play. All right. Guess who this is. Now is the winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer by this son of York. Okay, you started with an easy one. That's Richard III, famous. And judging by the sibilance, I would say uh, that's Laurence Olivier. You know your Shakespeare. Okay, the extra point, who's this? America, in the face of our common dangers, in this winter of our hardship, let us remember these timeless words. Oh, that's Barack Obama. Yes, his first inaugural address, January 2009. And? And he almost quoted Shakespeare. Almost. Yes. This winter of our hardship. He kind of glanced toward Richard III's winter of our discontent. He looked across the National Mall toward the Folger Shakespeare Library next to the Capitol. And he bailed. We'll get back to that. Okay, on to round two. Who's this? That light we see is burning in my hall. How far that little candle throws his beams. Um, an English lady doing Shakespeare. <laughs> Okay, wait, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure that was an English lady doing Shakespeare. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're right. It was. I was just looking for more detail. Also, <laughs> I like the sound of the buzzer. All right, so I'll give you half a point for that. That was Dame Peggy Ashcroft doing Portia from The Merchant of Venice. Now, for all the marbles, who's this? In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare wrote of a small candle and of how far it throws its beams. And as we look about us in this troubled world with its tensions and complexities... A collection of literature and art, however rare and great, may seem a very small candle indeed. Ronald Reagan. Okay, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama. Is there some theme here? Yep. I have a pet interest in presidents quoting Shakespeare. Ah, yes, you've written about this. I have. There's been a long, intense, and sometimes really odd relationship between the U.S. chief executive and the greatest writer of all time. I want to hear all about it. Tell me. 
John Adams and Thomas Jefferson revered Shakespeare. So they made a pilgrimage together to his house in Stratford-upon-Avon. Adams was stunned by how small it was, and Jefferson just complained about the entrance fee. <laughs> Relatable. Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, was a serious Shakespeare lover just like his dad, and he was the only president to have published a volume of Shakespeare criticism. No way. James Garfield read Shakespeare to his young kids in the White House. Millard Fillmore read Shakespeare to factory workers in Buffalo to promote literacy among American workers. John F. Kennedy was the first president to host Shakespeare performances in the White House, and he claimed him as an American writer. An American writer? That's bold, Kennedy. Bill Clinton knew a chunk of Macbeth by heart, and he'd wheel it out from time to time. George W. Bush knew his Shakespeare. He told an interviewer that on vacation in 2006, he had read three Shakespeare's. <laughs> Which ones? He didn't say. Oh, and M, in the name of being complete, and for the sake of the historical record, I guess I can't leave out this. Nevertheless, I take all of these slings and arrows gladly for you. Oi, 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 oi. I know, I know, I know. There you go. Shakespeare and the presidents. For two centuries, they've kept each other company. I'm Barry Edelstein, and I run the Old Globe, one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters. And this is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, from the Globe and Pushkin Industries. Our show discovers Shakespeare in all sorts of unexpected places and asks what he's doing there and what his presence means about him and about us. My companion on this search for Old William is a friend and colleague with their own deep interest in Shakespeare, the director and writer, M. Weinstein. Hey, M., you did great on that game. I could go a few more rounds, but I can't tell whether to be surprised that Shakespeare is so close to so many presidents or whether to feel like that's the most unsurprising thing in the world. Presidents give speeches all the time, and who better to quote? And Shakespeare writes about history and leadership and politics and power, so who better to read as a president, right? Absolutely. I think Shakespeare would be the best speechwriter any president could ever ask for. I mean, if I were President Biden trying to get the country behind some policy, I'd be out there with Henry V or Julius Caesar in my hand all day long. Barry for president. Oh, God forbid. But then there's Barack Obama choosing to come close but not quite with Shakespeare in his inaugural address. And I wonder, maybe there's something much more complex going on here. You put Shakespeare and a president next to each other, and I guess complex is the least you can expect. But what's it all about? That's what I want to explore in this episode of our show. What is Shakespeare doing in the Oval Office? And what does it mean that he's there? Where There's a Will, we'll be back after a short break. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. 
Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Em, as you know, one of the most prominent Shakespeareans working in America at this moment is James Shapiro. He's an author, scholar, researcher, professor, theater maker, and I'm honored to say he's a good friend. Professor Shapiro's book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, is a deep dive into Shakespeare's uncanny knack for showing up at moments of huge political upheaval in our country's history. It's a wonderful read. And since presidents are central to those moments, the book is also kind of this user's guide to the long and strange relationship between the bard of Stratford-upon-Avon and the commander-in-chief. And Shapiro says that the most important thing to grasp about that relationship is that when a president opens a Shakespeare play, it won't be long before he finds himself in its pages. The reason I think Shakespeare holds such power for precedence is the majority of plays, history, comedy, tragedy, all turn on failed rulers. That is to say, 
rulers who come into power and discover that it is overwhelming. So I know in business schools, they teach Shakespeare as a model for success, but Shakespeare is actually about political failure. Mm. And I think presidents learn pretty early on after their inaugurations that the ratings go down, the problems accumulate. And Shakespeare is a terrific resource for reflecting upon how difficult it is to rule. So the presidents are turning to Shakespeare for consolation, not inspiration. That That is so great. I asked Professor Shapiro to give me an example. One of the, the most powerful documents written about Shakespeare was written by one president to a future president. It was a letter by John Adams, our second president, to his son, John Quincy Adams, the, the future president. And he writes about reading through the history plays from start to finish. And he ends up doing a riff on Henry V in which he imagines a corrupt president involved with foreign dictators who are marrying their children off or getting into bed with them financially and how dangerous that would be for our country. So he's reading Shakespeare as political science and warning his son about the dangers of factionalism in America. It's a kind of a dry letter. It's not the kind of thing I would have wanted to receive from my father or written to my son, or nor would you send that kind of letter to your son. But these are political animals, and they find in Shakespeare political truths. Uh, Don't be so sure that I wouldn't send that kind of letter to my son. So it's not like they're, they're reading Shakespeare in a partisan sort of way, right? Oh, here's Shakespeare arguing for democracy, or here's Shakespeare arguing specifically about an issue that we're dealing with in the 1880s or the 1920s. It's more of an abstract sense of how power works. Exactly. And, and Shakespeare thought harder about how power works than a new writer I know. He uh, was up close in Elizabeth's court and King James's court. He saw how power worked. He avoided prison, which most playwrights of his day did not. He understood how far you could push things. And he understood the limits of power and what destroyed powerful people. And smart presidents recognize that in Shakespeare. So, Em, in the list of presidents I went through at the opening of this episode, I left out a whopper, the big kahuna of Shakespeare-loving presidents, Abraham Lincoln. That seems kind of appropriate because Lincoln was a Shakespearean figure himself. He really was. And the man was obsessed with this writer, haunted by him. I had to ask Professor Shapiro to talk about it. No president was more of a bardophile than Lincoln. You have an amazing chapter in your book about Lincoln and his ties to Shakespeare and his assassin's ties to Shakespeare. Can you talk a little bit about Lincoln's Shakespeare? Lincoln was the greatest reader of Shakespeare in America. When he entered the White House, after he waited a year following his son's death, he started going to plays religiously. Lincoln didn't have much of an education. He didn't as we would say, go to high school. He, he, he barely had a grammar school education. But one of the books that his stepmother brought into the house was an anthology with 20 or so excerpts from the plays, including Hamlet's speech, Claudius's speech from that 
same play, Julius Caesar and the like. And Lincoln really was drawn to some of these and every chance he got, especially during the Civil War, where he faced terrible, terrible challenges and he was mourning the death of, of a son. Any chance he got, he opened up a Shakespeare volume and asked those in his company if he might read and talk about them. It must have been unbelievable listening to Lincoln read Claudius's speech on guilt in the midst of watching 600,000 Americans die in a brutal civil war. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? That Claudius speech is so harrowing. That's Hamlet's uncle, King Claudius, confessing that he murdered his own brother to get his crown. It's this breathtaking speech about guilt and self-loathing and this terrible feeling of a soul that's just atrophied. Lincoln told people that he thought this was the finest speech in Hamlet, even better than to be or not to be. He just felt these plays, Barry, in ways that even you and I don't. And the play Lincoln felt the most was Macbeth. He was obsessed with the play and with the great tomorrow and tomorrow speech. He would read that speech and you could just feel how deeply he understood the place where Macbeth was coming from. Right before the end of his life, he had premonitions of his death and he had a dream in which he actually saw himself kind of like Lady Macbeth walking around, sleepwalking in the White House, walking up to a soldier who tells him the president is dead. He's so deep into Shakespeare that it is infecting his dream life and shaping his fears about his own demise. That to me is extraordinary. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Ugh, it's gonna take me a while to get over this image of Abraham Lincoln wandering around the White House mumbling tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. That's why I find this whole subject so bracing. It's hard to imagine a moment when the life circumstances of an actual person reading a Shakespearean tragedy could be more heightened and dramatic than the fictional circumstances in the play. But again and again, Lincoln seems to meet Shakespeare when he himself is in situations as intense as the ones in the plays. It's this weird hall of mirrors feeling, like you can't really tell where the boundary is between Lincoln's life and Shakespeare's art. It's also just so satisfying to think about a national leader actually turning towards these plays for spiritual nourishment. It bums me out that it's hard to imagine such a thing happening today. M. Lincoln lived at a moment when not just he, but the entire country was Shakespeare crazy. Remember our episode about the Astor Place riots? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Shakespeare was just so much closer to the center of culture 150 years ago than he is today. I asked Professor Shapiro about that. 
and also about Obama's inaugural near-miss of Shakespeare and whether he thought it could ever be possible again to have a Shakespeare-loving president. Do you think that Shakespeare's place in American life has somehow shifted to where if Obama had quoted Shakespeare correctly in his inaugural, it would have been a demerit? I'm trying to place where Shakespeare ended as a truly popular figure. I would say since World War II, when Shakespeare became a formal academic subject, it's really hard to pull him out of the elite category. The professionalization of Shakespeare scholarship into the university is a major turning point. Yeah, once you're tested on Shakespeare, it's over. And the, the irony is no one takes down authority as powerfully as Shakespeare. So he should be weaponized in our political culture. But because he has been turned into one of the elites, the embodiment of elite culture spoken in a kind of uh, BBC uh, British accent until quite recently, and not reflecting the diversity of American culture on stage until the last, say, 40 years or so, it's going to take a lot of work to change that. It is going to take a lot of work. But that seems like a worthwhile effort to me. Me too. And I don't want to mischaracterize Professor Shapiro as being somehow grim about Shakespeare's prospects for the future. Not at all. He continues to inspire me to double down on this writer as one of the real sources of hope for our national conversation. Shakespeare in a Divided America is a great read, not only because it reminds us of some extraordinary periods in our country's history, but also because it shows how a playwright figured deeply and necessarily into each one. As angry as the divides in America may grow, somehow Shakespeare manages to tamp down the flames. Americans are not very good about speaking across the great cultural divide, whether the subject is abortion or race or uh, political divisions. But Shakespeare is one of the few things still embraced across the political spectrum. Perhaps his plays are just so broad in their reach. But the best answer I have is his plays, for better or worse, have touched upon the things that mattered to us and continue to matter to us, whether they divide or unite us, whether in peace or war. And for that reason, we keep turning back to his work. Where There's a Will, we'll be back after a short break. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers, 
is about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. There's one more American president we need to talk about, Em, if we're really going to understand what Shakespeare is doing in the West Wing. And that's the president who's at the center of the West Wing, President Jed Bartlett. Bartlett was played by Martin Sheen, who, by the way, was a Shakespearean actor himself. And Bartlett is, in many ways, a character Shakespeare might have written. Erudite, brilliant, epigrammatic, wise, strong, compassionate, funny. He's the perfect fantasy of what an American leader should be. And he is a total fantasy, which is, of course, the whole point. Absolutely. Jed Bartlett was a dream of an American president at a very, very different time in our national politics. And there are whole podcasts on the West Wing that delve into all of that. Far more than there are Shakespeare podcasts, I bet. Well, we're working to fix that here. Totally. Anyway, I want to talk about Jed Bartlett because, to me, he's the one president who would have quoted Shakespeare in his inaugural address, unapologetically and at great length. So, Em, to test this hunch, I spoke to Eli Addy. He's an award-winning television writer who wrote for five seasons of The West Wing. Oh, that's amazing. I love that show. And before that, he was a speechwriter to major politicians, 
including Vice President Al Gore. Gore's concession speech to George W. Bush, which he delivered after the Supreme Court ended the long legal fight over the recount of the Florida ballot, that was Addy's most famous handiwork. I thought he might have some insight into how presidents, both fictional and real, think about how and why to quote Shakespeare. It's funny because I worked in speechwriting for a bunch of years and I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked in the White House. I've helped presidential campaigns on speeches since in the last, you know, bunch of years. And um, I have to, I'm ashamed to admit to you that I've never cited Shakespeare in a speech. Uh, I've certainly tried to embody the rhythm and the sense of the moment and the sense of, you know, drama and the sense of kind of uh, narrative. Not that I, you know, could ever come close, but it's just felt like you're showing how smart you are. I wonder how many politicians in the year 2022 could get away with citing Shakespeare and not be seen as elitist. So is there a meeting where somebody says, okay, fifth grade English and no higher? Do you sit down when you're sitting, you know, you've got a a big campaign speech that you've got to write, or I don't know, the State of the Union, and are there discussions about the level of speech that you're going for? Or is it just kind of in the water in Washington that we don't get too fancy? There are meetings, and there there certainly, depending on who you're working for, if you're working for a president or a vice president, the meetings can be expansive and lots of people can, you know, try to kind of weigh in and, and express an opinion. But I think that it's in the water, it's in the culture. I do remember a time when I was writing speeches in the mayor's office right after college that I used the word vexed in a speech, Mm. or maybe it was vexing. And some crusty deputy mayor kind of pulled me aside and said, why do you think this is Harvard University? You know, like (laughs) nobody knows what this word means. And I remember thinking at the time, like, really? Nobody knows what the word vexing means? And I don't know, maybe maybe it is too sophisticated of a word. But I think you're trying to be plain spoken but elegant. You're trying Hmm. to be simple but beautiful. And too many big words, too many grand illusions, and you can alienate people because, much as I love Shakespeare, I don't see the value of it because too many people, I'm sorry to say, find it off-putting, find find him hard to read. Got a C in that course in high school. You know what I mean? Uh And and while the Bill Clintons and Barack Obamas were whizzing past them and devouring all of the soliloquies, it's a little bit like saying, I was one of the eggheads, kind of laughing at you from across the lunchroom. I was one of the eggheads, Em. Me too. I don't think I was laughing at anyone across the lunchroom, though. At least I hope I wasn't. But you know what I do remember? My high school self thinking about the way presidents speak. So I was 15 years old when Ronald Reagan was elected. Would that make sense? 1980, right, is when Reagan was elected. I was 15 years old. And so Reagan was president for eight years of my basically arrival into adulthood. And he was the great communicator. And I have this very vivid memory of the first space shuttle disaster. And he quoted a poet whose name I don't recall, not Shakespeare, and He rose to the moment. He rose to the occasion of this horrendous tragedy by finding a kind of register of eloquence that was beyond the normal somehow. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye 
and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Wow, that imagery is so evocative. Yeah. And when I brought up Reagan's challenger speech with Addie, it got him thinking about rhetoric and its power. I mean rhetoric in the classical sense, the art of using language to persuade. That's what really great politicians do. I actually believe very strongly that presidents, senators, statesmen abandon a kind of a rhetorical tradition, if you will, a kind of a rigorous, you know, intellectually sound way of presenting ideas at their peril. When I worked in the Clinton White House as somebody who'd already, you know, been writing speeches for a handful of years before I went to work there, I found that, that, that Clinton himself, brilliant, incredible guy and brilliant speaker and certainly knew better than me about all manner of subjects, he was not interested in rhetoric. And I remember, I was a junior guy, but I remember being despondent and talking to some of the honchos and consultants. And um, one of the political consultants who was hanging around saying to me, he agreed with me and he was saying, you know, rhetoric is your insurance policy on history. Rhetoric is your insurance policy on history. Yeah, but in the sense that very few people can name anything substantive that John Kennedy did as president. A bill he passed, but he Mm -hmm. was incredibly quotable as our last, you know, sort of poet-friendly, you know, barred, sensitive, intellectual president. It's really interesting, Eli, you know, to think about the eloquence of Abraham Lincoln, which is so central to how we remember him, FDR, JFK. But then you, you, as a young speechwriter, bump into a guy in the mayor's office going, vexed is too big. That's right. So how on earth are you going to talk about the proud man's contumely? You can't resist a good Hamlet quote, can you, Barry? Well, I'm not trying to convince anyone to elect me president. (laughs) But doing that was Eli Addy's job, in real life and on TV, too. And I wondered if his work with fictional politicians gave him license to do things that he could never do with real ones. So I asked him about the West Wing and Jed Bartlett. Bartlett, the character, the fictional character, was a Nobel Prize winner before he became a politician. That never happens. Mm -hmm. You know, he was actually a brilliant economist who, you know, was sort of talked into running because he was the kind of guy who should have been running, even though they never do. And then he won. All things that don't tend to really happen. Jed Bartlett is the writer Aaron Sorkin's greatest creation. Sorkin recruited Addy to write for the West Wing. This was after the Bush v. Gore decision ended his previous gig writing for the vice president. Sorkin is a theater lover and a Shakespeare lover. And he and the rest of the writers on the West Wing gave Bartlett a few close brushes with Shakespeare, didn't they? They did. One of them was when Bartlett went to see a Broadway production of a Shakespeare play. My sense is that this was Aaron's way of saying, you know, it matters if you're going to go and actually sit through a Shakespeare play. We want our president to be somebody who can do that Mm -hmm. and wants to do that and doesn't just want to chomp down a hot dog at a baseball game. Not that there's anything wrong with that, you know? On the one hand, we want to celebrate the eloquence. We want to be inspired by the eloquence. On the other hand, you can't do it because it's going to label you as some sort of Harvard, Yale elitist, right? But Bartlett made it seem cool, made it seem aspirational to be that brilliant. And that's what made the show so successful. Yeah, The West Wing was a sort of a Shakespeare of its own. And it was often in the top 10, not always in the top 10. (laughs) 
You know, Barry, this whole conversation really makes me want to go back and binge all of The West Wing. It is such a great show. But, you know, from the vantage point of this moment in American political life, it seems positively quaint. Jed Bartlett today looks completely impossible. It's heartbreaking. It's like a vivid dream you wake up from and kind of wish you could return to, but you know you can't. My conversation with Eli Addy reminded me of this great JFK quote that I love. He said, If more politicians knew poetry and more poets knew politics, I'm convinced the world would be a little better place in which to live. Oof, you're making me wistful. Yeah, I get it. Because maybe we've lost something by kicking Shakespeare out of presidential speeches. Maybe our world is a bit poorer if there's zero chance that Jed Bartlett could ever be real. I asked Eli Addy if he could relate to that. And? And he made me feel a little better. It does come down to this whole sort of idea of rhetoric as an insurance policy on history. So I would love for him to be embraced more. I guess maybe I'm just skeptical about whether the answer is full-on Shakespeare or just to try to use it as a guide and to try to just be as high-minded as you can, you know, without it seeming that you are kind of lording it over your audience, lording it over your constituents. But I think I would submit to you, Barry, that maybe Obama got it right. If rhetoric is your insurance policy on history and all you're doing is quoting Shakespeare, great as he is, do you score points for that? Or Mm. is it better if somebody hears you say, you know, winner of hardship, and they think like, wow, I get that, and it's an image, and it's an idea, and Mm -hmm. this guy's smarter than me, and okay, fine, I'm going to go on this website and sign up for this healthcare plan. So maybe if it's a guide, maybe if it's a model for a certain kind of eloquence, maybe if it is a template for a way of invoking the drama of a given moment, for placing Mm. ourselves in a context of the human story, All the things Shakespeare did instinctively, politicians labor to do. So maybe the the answer is to do what Barack Obama did and just change a couple words and claim it as your own. (laughs) And then nobody nobody calls you an egghead. You get all the eloquence, you get the insurance policy on history, and, you know, everyone's a winner. That does make me feel a little better because, hey, rhetoric is your insurance policy on history. Well... President Obama did take out a pretty big policy with the rhetoric insurance company. And you know what, Em? After being careful not to quote Shakespeare while he was president, years later, in 2021, when he no longer had to worry about how it would land, he finally jumped in. So let me give him the last word, or rather the second to last, because on this podcast, Shakespeare always gets the last word. Let me quote the bard, William Shakespeare. What wound, he writes, did ever heal but by degrees? Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare is written and hosted by me, Barry Edelstein. My co-host is M. Weinstein. Our show was produced by Buffy Gorilla and Nisha Venkat, with assistant producers Jennifer Sanchez and Salman Ahad Khan. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardot from Pushkin and Alex Lewis and John Myers from Rohome Productions. Our editor is Audrey Dilling. 
Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Our theme is an original composition by Hannes Brown. Samia Bouzid is our fact checker. Thanks to Pushkin's development team, Lital Mulad and Justine Lang, and to producer Sam Dingman for creating our pilot. President Obama clip courtesy of UN Climate Change. Where There's a Will is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and The Old Globe. Barry Edelstein, that's me, is Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director, and Timothy J. Shields is Audrey S. Geisel Managing Director of The Old Globe. For The Globe, thanks to sound director Paul Peterson and assistant to the sound director Evan Eason, director of marketing and communications Dave Henson, assistant to the artistic and managing directors Carolyn Budd. The Theodore and Audrey Geisel Fund provides leadership support for The Old Globe's year-round activities. To learn more about the Tony Award-winning The Old Globe, one of America's leading regional theater companies, visit theoldglobe.org. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Find the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.